Hello, everybody. Welcome to Grace This Weekend. It's good to see you guys. We're in a uh, series right now called Give It Away, and we're talking about bringing hope to places where hope is hard to find. And we've been talking about this for the last couple weeks. Uh, To kind of get into our conversation this weekend, I want to back us up a little bit to our conversation last weekend. We talked about uh, the, what, what I like to call the mission statement of the church. Jesus gave it. A lot of times we call it the Great Commission. But uh, when you think of yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, someone who loves, follows, and is fully devoted to Christ, Christ gave us a, a few prime directives, and one of them certainly is the Great Commission. Let me show it to you. Grab your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 28. It's right there, Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> And if you weren't able to be here last weekend, uh, go out to our website and uh, you can listen to it, watch it, uh, get a podcast or iTunes if you want. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and following. This is the mission statement of the church of Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very ends of the age. And so we talked about that in depth last weekend. Uh, we talked about the five elements of the Great Commission. Uh, we talked about how if you were raised in the church, uh, many of us were not, but some of us were raised in the church, that you tend to live that backwards. The last thing you would ever do is go when it's supposed to be the first thing that you do. And so we got into that. And like I said, to go out and listen to it if you, if you want Uh, This weekend, I want to kind of piggyback on that and build off of that conversation. So you have the Great Commission, and we want to start talking about how do you do the Great Commission? What are are like the ways that you execute it kind of a thing, and and what would you do with that? And what I want you to see is that you, you execute the Great Commission on the rails of the Great commandment, all right? So that's another one of the prime directives in Scripture. So the Great Commission happens on the foundation or on the rails. It's delivered through the Great Commandment. Now, the Great Commandment is this. A guy came up to Jesus one time and uh, said, what am I supposed to do to go to heaven? And what Jesus did was he put everything into one nutshell. And he said this in the book of Mark. It's in a couple places in the Bible, but the book of Mark is the one we'll use. Uh, He says this. Jesus said, this is what you do. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second commandment's like it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so a lot of times we call that the great commandment. So the great commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, right? The great commission is delivered on the rails of the great commandment. Everything that a follower of Jesus does is to be done in love. So I love the Lord my God. I give myself to the Lord, right? Because I'm a disciple. So I love the Lord with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. I am fully devoted to Christ, more, much more than a Christian subculture, much more than religious activity. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what drives me. So I'm driven for the great commission but then I'm changed by God. Love is the natural outcome of my life when I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So I deliver that on the rails of the great commandment. I'm motivated by love. So when I go on the great commission, I'm not going to straighten people out, right? I'm not going to propagate Western culture. I'm not going to make Christians. I'm going to make disciples. So my love for God 
and my love for those people that don't yet know God, that is what motivates me. That's what drives me, and that's what's gonna cause me to function in a certain way. So when I go and love an individual, I'm gonna engage that individual as a whole human being, right? I'm gonna look at their needs. We have physical needs, we have emotional needs, we have spiritual needs, and I'm gonna engage the whole of that person. So I'm gonna love them. So if I go and I'm trying to share the gospel or share the good news of Jesus with someone, but their physical needs are the predominant feature of their life, then I might first go and make sure they have food or shelter or clean water, right? If the emotional needs are the predominant feature of their life, I might first go and help them through an abuse situation, help them out of a sex trafficking situation, help them with an educational need, right? Or if their spiritual need is the predominant feature of their life, I might first engage them there. If they're saying, how do I find God and how do I find purpose for my life, right? But I'm not going to leave any of those needs unaddressed. So we, we pull up short with the great commission when we do not deliver it through the great commandment. So if I go and all I do is drop, I call it the, the gospel bomb. I, I walk in, I put up a billboard, I'm like, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, eternity, smoking or non-smoking, out, you know, kind of thing, then I have not fulfilled the great commission at all, right? And if all I do is deliver the social gospel bomb, right? Oh, we fed everybody, we clothed everybody, we put clean water in everybody's village, but we never take them to the reason why we would do that. I have not fulfilled the great commission. It's only when I do all of those things on the rails of the great commandment that I'm actually fulfilling the great commission. So I might go and say, well, you're hungry, let me feed you. You're thirsty, let me give you water. And by the way, we're here because we love Jesus and he loves you right? We're not going to pull up short in any of those areas. We're going to see that whole person, love them through the great commandment, our neighbors, ourselves, but make sure that we fulfill the great commission. And so that all is one thing. It's the great commission delivered on the rails of the great commandment. Now, I want to ask Pastor Joe to come back up with me this weekend. Pastor Joe's our give it away pastor here. And I asked Joe uh, if he would just describe to us a little bit what this would look like kind of in real time. So some examples of how uh, we would work together as a church to fulfill the Great Commission on the rails of the Great Commandment. So explain that to us a little bit, how that would really work here. Yeah, we have lots of different things going on uh, amongst the people of grace that are both opportunities that maybe you want to jump into if you're not involved in these kind of things, but also there are things that folks from grace, maybe they're in the row with you right now, are involved in. And so uh, lots of ways to bridge these two concepts together of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And some of these things would be like, um, we have some uh, there's this kid that is um, having a real rough time, and some of our folks were working with this teenager, and um, <laughs> he was basically saying, you know, I'd like to stop doing drugs, but I have a really hard time because my parents are the neighborhood drug dealers, and so it's just so available to me. Like, how do I start? And so we have folks that are coming alongside him, and they're like actually stepping into father, mother type of roles to be that support, to be that encouragement, to help him take the steps necessary to get out of that. We have other folks that are um, stepping into scenarios where they're able to help be the support for teen mothers. And so um, especially like over in the Kenmore neighborhood, we work with uh, an organization 
organization there called First Glance. There's some folks that have stepped in and said, we want to help with um, these young moms because a lot of times they have to drop out of high school just to be able to care for their baby. And so we have some volunteers stepping in and saying, no, we want to help you at least be able to finish high school, help you get your uh, kind of like life semi-stabilized. We'll help you with your kid. Um, we do this on a periodic weekly basis or whatever. So they're stepping in, offering amazing support um, in those ways, showing you're still valued. God still loves you. Um, we have other folks that are going out on a weekly basis and they're walking the streets at different times during the week and they're purposefully going and extending a hand, extending conversation, extending love to uh, women who've been trafficked into the sex industry. And so they're trying to find these ladies and have conversations with them, encourage them that they are valued, they are loved, and it doesn't have to all do with objectification and that we can actually help and introduce you to God and begin helping introduce you to a life that isn't trapped in these scenarios. Um, overseas, we work in different areas like um, in Mazatlan, Mexico, where we work amongst a people group where they literally live off of the local landfill. Um, their home structures are like right on the border or even inside the landfill themselves. And their only livelihood is to kind of scavenge out of the landfills. And so we have people that go down and help those folks on a regular basis. We have um, missions work in Haiti where we'll do uh, food initiatives or water initiatives or simply malnutrition initiatives or even medical and dental uh, clinics because even a bad cut, you know, we would think, oh, just get some Neosporin or go down to the clinic and get it stitched up real quick and they don't have those options. And so we want to do some simple things. And if we find something drastic, we take it to where uh, it needs to go to a more established hospital, um, which in Haiti is a whole other story in and of itself, but we take them where they need to go. So there's all these kind of initiatives. There's ways, as we've been mentioning in the last couple of weeks, to be um, fervently and in detail praying about these different works, either locally or globally. There's ways to be giving and supplying these different things, and there's certainly ways to go, whether it's on a weekly basis or a monthly basis here locally, or whether it's a, a yearly or biannually thing overseas, or even if you want to move to these neighborhoods or move to these countries, lots of great ways to tangibly take the great commandment into these places to see Jesus more known. It's pretty awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Joe. So that, that, that's just a, a literally like a tip of an iceberg kind of a thing. There, there is so much that uh, you are involved with as a church and it's everything from everything Joe just said to feed my starving children, which is famine relief that we uh, participate on, uh, to sending full-time missionary. It's just, it's the whole gamut where we would look and say, we know that we've been given this prime directive to take the gospel to, to the ends of the earth. And we know it's real clear in scripture that that gospel is to be delivered on the rails of the great commandment with love, with dignity and respect. How do we do those two things? And we're going to involve our lives. We're going to involve our finances. We're going to involve uh, all that kind of our resources to, to do those, those two things, okay? Now, I want to kind of dig at this idea a little bit, and we're, and we're going to dig at it in a way that is probably unique to some of you. If you grew up in church, um, might mess with your head a little bit. If you didn't, you're, you're, you're in good shape, right? So I'm just going to show you uh, what we're going to talk about here, because I want us to get our head around this, and I want us to get a, our head around it in the ways that it uniquely affects our culture. So as a, as a member of the body of Christ in North America, in Akron, Ohio, there's parts of the scripture that would jump out and speak uniquely to us. 
And if I was teaching in Mexico or Jemena Chat or whatever, there's parts of the Bible that would jump out and speak uniquely to them. That's the nature of the Bible. It's universal. So I want to lean into a part of the Bible that speaks uniquely to us. I want to show you that as a North American, as someone from the greater Akron area, you can participate in delivering the Great Commission on the rails of the Great Commandment. And I want to show you how that happens uh, here. So let's talk about poverty and wealth, poverty and wealth, okay? So we've talked about this quite a bit over the years here at Grace Church, and, and understanding the realities of poverty and understanding the realities of wealth help us to understand the opportunities to advance the gospel throughout the world, okay? So when I talk about wealth, whenever the Bible talks about wealth, you as a North American should tune into those parts of the Bible strongly, because one of the things that's true of us as North Americans is that we are generally wealthy. So the, the world stats would say this. If you eat every day, if you have access to clean water, if you have shelter, if you own a car and a change of clothes, you are in the top 2% of the wealthiest people in the world, okay? So let me ask this question. Who in here is wealthy? Raise your hands if you're wealthy, if you fall into that category. Now, after that, do you know who the richest people group, the wealthiest people group on the planet is? Ready? Buckle up. You're not going to believe it. American teenagers are the, rich, are the wealthiest people group on the planet. I know. You think you're poor, and now your dad doesn't care, right? So it's, <laughs> right? You're the wealthiest. Why? Because American teenagers have money. Remember, the average yearly income in Haiti is $400, yearly income per family, so American teenagers have money, and all of their money generally is expendable income. So you do not feed yourself, you do not clothe yourself, you do not put shelter over yourself with the money that you have. And now your dad is really mad, right? So American teenagers are the wealthiest people group on the planet, actually the wealthiest people group in the history of the world, because all the money that they have, they just spend on things that they want to spend it on. Now, I don't say any of that to bring shame or guilt. I am wealthy. Heidi and I are very wealthy people. Our children are very wealthy people. I often remind them that they're spoiled rich kids, okay? So we, we are wealthy. I'm not saying that as shame as guilt because I don't feel that way. We'll talk about that more in a minute. I say that only as awareness. It's a reality, not shaming you. I'm just talking about the reality of it. So when the Bible speaks to the wealthy, it is talking to us, Okay, generally. Now, I know that there's some North Americans that struggle to put food on their table and pay the rent. And like I said, it's not a guilt trip. Just generally, it's a reality that we should be a part of and aware of because it's a unique thing for us. We're the wealthiest group of people in the history of the planet when you talk about the way that we live and the levels that we live at. And God would say certain things that we should hear and an amplified level to us because it applies to us in a unique way. Now, let's talk about poverty for a minute. When I talk about poverty, we're going to say poverty a lot uh, this weekend. When we speak about poverty, we're not talking about the distribution of wealth because wealth is a relative term. What does it mean to be wealthy? What it means to be wealthy is when someone has more than I have, I think of them as wealthy. So wealth is a relative term, right? I would, if you said, are you wealthy, Jeff? I would say, 
maybe not by North American standards, by, by Haitian standards or African standards, I'm Bill Gates, right? But I know this other guy, and he's got different emblems on his car, and they have a vacation, right? And so you, I, wealth is a relative term. All it means to us is when someone has more than I do, I think of them as wealthy. So poverty is not the equal distribution of wealth. Poverty is this. True poverty is the lack of access to hope. It's the lack of access to hope. I need something and I have no hope of getting it, right? I need medicine and I live in a place where there is no hope that I'm going to get that. I need a job. If I live in a neighborhood or if I live in a country where unemployment is 60%, where am I gonna get a job from? I need food but we're drought ridden or flood ridden or pestilence ridden or whatever ridden. And there, there is no hope. It's not a matter of working myself. It's not a matter of pulling myself up by the bootstraps. There is no bootstraps, right? So I have a lack of access to hope. There is no way for me to change my circumstances. And that is what true poverty is. So try to erase that concept of wealth because what is wealth? Nobody really knows, right? But what is poverty? Poverty is when I'm in a set of circumstances and I can't do anything to change those circumstances. Now I'm truly impoverished. And now, now I'm getting into the levels of what God thinks about and God looks at. So the Bible is going to say things like this when it comes to poverty. The Bible is going to be very clear that God's heart and God's mind is with those who are in true poverty. God's gonna say things like this. I am the father to the fatherless, right? Fatherlessness is a condition of poverty. If I don't have a dad, if I don't know my dad, I can't change that. There's no hope of that, right, in and of myself. So poverty, uh, the righteousness and justice, when there is no access to justice, if the, the police officer's corrupt and the mayor's corrupt and the governor's corrupt and the president's corrupt. Who do you go to when you get ripped off? It's a lack of access to hope. So God's gonna talk about that a bunch. And he's gonna, he's in essence gonna say, I have a heartbeat for the sick, the poor, the oppressed. There's over 650 verses in the Bible that directly address God's heart for the sick, the oppressed, the impoverished, the, inflict, the afflicted. So God cares about true poverty. He wants that to be on, that is on his mind. And as his followers, those who have the mind and the heart of God, if I'm valuing what God values and I'm investing my life in the things that God would, in essence, invest his life in, then poverty is to be on my heart and my mind. If it's on God's heart and mind, right? 650 verses on poverty, the sick, the afflicted, the oppressed. By the way, there's 32 verses on abundance and uh, wealth, prosperity, and all of them apply to the nation of Israel. God thinks a lot more about the oppressed and the poor than he thinks about my new flat screen, okay? And if I am going to have his heart, if I am to have his mind, then the sick, the afflicted, the poor are to be at the center point of my heart and my mind as well. Now, God cares about that and God addresses it. He actually has this plan. And God's plan for addressing the needs of the impoverished are to send his people 
to do something about that, his church. And so God would say things like this, 1 John chapter 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. James would say that our faith without actions, without deeds is dead. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. God would look and say, yeah, I care about the, the truly impoverished, and my prescription, my solution is my people. I want my people that are called by my name, that reflect my heart and my mind, that are going out to make disciples, to care and to engage in the needs of the world around us. And you can do a quick pass through scripture, and this is easy peasy, low, low hanging fruit in scripture. Does God care about the needs of the poor? Yeah, read, the, read like on a cursory level, read through the Bible and that jumps out. Does God tell his people to do something about it? Same thing, cursory level, read through the Bible, that jumps out. You don't have to be a theologian to figure this out in the scripture. So God cares and God wants his people to engage, okay? Now, the needs of the world are not hard to identify. It's simple to identify the needs of the world. We all know them, right? The issue is not identification. The issue is ownership. What am I supposed to do then? I mean, the needs of the world, I can't feed everybody. I can't, I can't make every injustice go away. I can't free every captive. Like, what am I supposed to do as a follower of Jesus Christ? How, do, how in the world do I take ownership of these things that God says are on his heart and wants them to be on mine? Well, I'm grateful that the Apostle Paul as he's explaining this and lays out, kind of speaks on God's behalf, helps us to grab a principle. And this principle should be a driving principle in every follower of Jesus's life. And then it should corporately be a driving principle of a church, even a local church. And so let me show it to you. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter eight is where we're gonna land and set up shop here. It's page 806 in those Bibles that are in the chairs. And I'm going to show you this principle that was explained to the early churches and applies to us as a church and you and me as individual followers of Jesus Christ. This is an important passage. It's one we've taught on more than once here at Grace. We'll teach on it again because it becomes a foundational piece for the way that we should think about the Great Commission and the great commandment, verse one, chapter eight, Second Corinthians, and now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were able, first of all, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to the one who has, not according to the what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, and here it is, ready? But that there might be equality. At the time, at the present time, your plenty will supply their need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it's written, the one who has gathered much did not have too much, and the one that gathered little does not have too little. And Paul lays out this concept of equality. Now, when he talks about equality, he's not talking about communism. He's not talking about socialism. He's not talking about communal living. When he talks about equality, he has something in mind. And as you read even the next couple of chapters, it becomes crystal clear that what he is talking about on a high level is the equality of access to the gospel. Can we build bridges? Can we help other people using our wealth? There's no question that this passage is about material wealth. Can we use our wealth to build bridges to help people understand the gospel? And Paul commends the Macedonian church. The Macedonian church was birthed into affliction. It it never had money. And he looks over at the church here in Corinthians and he says, hey, you guys have money. These guys have the right heart. They don't have the money, but they begged us for the opportunity to participate in this propagating of the gospel, to be a part of the great commandment, the great commission. They begged us, you have the money, they have the heart, learn from their heart and bring your wealth to bear on this process because God has given it to you for those, those reasons in part, right? And he says this, he said, first I want you to give yourself to the Lord, right? Because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You love, follow, and you are fully committed to the cause of Christ. And then I want you to give yourself to other people. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And I want you to be a part of building these bridges. And I'm not, I'm not asking you to impoverish yourself, I'm asking for equality. I want their path to the gospel to be as clear, as steady as your path to the gospel has been. And I want you to excel in that, just like you would learn the Bible more, just like you would participate in biblical community, just like you would intentionally share your faith. I want you to excel. I want you to intentionalize. I want you to continue to grow in giving to see this happen, okay? Now, let's just dig at this for a minute, and we're going to kind of go deep with it. Let's talk for a minute about what our wealth does. So what our wealth does is our wealth provides us with avenues of hope. True poverty is when I have no access to hope. My wealth gives me avenues of hope. So my wealth, remember, top 2% right? And Jeff and Heidi are right there in the top 2%. Me too. 
My wealth gives me hope. So my wealth does things like it pays my electric bill, right? My wealth buys my groceries. My kids never, never have to worry about whether they're going to eat in a given day. Although they will say they're starving to death and there's nothing to eat, and that's never true, right? So they never, they're not going to go hungry. I certainly am not going to go hungry. Most of you are trying to lose weight. You're not trying to gain it, right? So we have those kind of things, food, shelter, clothing. Our wealth does all of that stuff. But our wealth does not stop there. Wealth provides avenues of hope. So for instance, our wealth gives us access to healthcare. If I don't feel good, I go to the doctor. If I don't feel good, I go down to CVS, right? If I got a headache, I take an Advil, right? If, I got a, if my stomach is upset, I take a Rolaids. If I'm taking both of those at the same time, I've had a terrible day, right? So I don't... My wealth provides me with access to new opportunities. I purchased an education with my wealth. I bought a college degree. I bought a master's degree. I bought a doctorate. And that provides all kinds of opportunities for me because I was able to purchase those things. My wealth provides me security. So because of my wealth, I buy things like homeowner's insurance. So if my house burns down, my insurance company will rebuild my house for me. If you live in Haiti and your house burns down, you live on the street. So my wealth purchases security for me. My wealth gives me the ability to create more wealth. So Heidi and I will take my, our wealth and we will start a new business with it. We'll take our wealth and we'll invest it for, we'll set aside for retirement. Right? We'll take our wealth and we'll, we'll purchase another degree, another educational degree, which gives us greater opportunity. So our wealth allows us to create more wealth. Our wealth allows our children to start their lives out with wealth. These are all the ramifications of having wealth. Now, don't feel guilty. Don't feel ashamed. That's not the point. I'm just diagnosing it, okay? Now, here's the other thing. This is important. My wealth also allows me easier and clearer access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many of you drove to church this weekend? See? How many of you have more than one Bible? How many of you have multiple Bibles from different places on your iPhone that you could buy, that you have electricity to plug in, that you have an internet to use? See? How many of you listen to Christian music? How many of you will read a Christian book? You can go out right now and you can listen to world-class preaching. Of course, you're getting it as we speak, but you can go, any preacher in the world you can listen to right now. Any philosopher, any thinker, any theologian on the planet. Our wealth gives us clearer and easier access to the gospel. You're gonna take a short-term missions trip. Your kids are going to go to camp. Your kids are going to go to youth conference. We have a youth program and a youth center led by youth pastors. Okay? And our wealth allows us to do all those kind of things. Again, no guilt, no shame. Don't hear me wrong. I'm just diagnosing. We have access to hope because of the abundance of what we have. And true poverty is the lack of access to hope. I have none of those things. 
And what Paul says is, he says, I want equality. I don't want you to become poor, and I'm not asking that others become rich. I'm not looking for a equality of income. That's communism, socialism, right? I'm looking for an equality of hope. If you have accesses to hope, could you, like the Macedonian churches, use your wealth to help purchase or build bridges of hope for others who do not have access to it? So this is the way that this winds up working in reality. Let me show you this. I'm gonna channel my inner Ryan Roadman here. All right? This is the way that this works. This is you, okay? And over here is the gospel. Now, the gospel is not something that people get to. The gospel is something that's brought to people. So the church of Jesus Christ and the followers of Jesus Christ, this person does not know Christ. The gospel is here. And we are to build the bridges to the people by bringing them the gospel to all aspects of the world. So we're gonna build those bridges with certain mindsets and understanding and methods that make sense to us. So for instance, you are over here, you don't know about Christ, I'm gonna start explaining God to you and I'm gonna start with something as basic as God is a loving father. God's a loving father, did you know that? He loves you, he cares about you, he protects you. It's one of the, 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 uh, the great images in the scripture of God, one of the great metaphors that's universal is that God is a loving father. I'm gonna let you know that. I'm gonna let you know something like this. Um, you can find God in the Bible. You can read the Bible. If you read the Bible, the, the word of God does not return void. You discover the heart of God. If you wanna meet God, meet him at the Bible. Right? Things we would say all the time, and they're totally true. They're 100% true, right? Um, you can say things like this. Um, God is, the, is a meter of your needs. If you're scared, if you're alone, go boldly into the throne room of God. And he'll, he'll help you, help you through a hard time. Help, all true, completely, completely true, right? Things like um, when you think about God, think in terms of Jesus, Okay, so we live, in a, we live in a Christianized culture. We celebrate Christmas and Easter. Jesus is not a foreign concept to us or to most anybody in North America, for instance, in a Western culture. So we're gonna look and say, we wanna bring the gospel to this person. We wanna build a bridge so that they can cross over that bridge and they can accept the gospel. And we're gonna explain that gospel in terms that make sense to us. These are great terms. This is a good presentation of the gospel. It's a good bridge to the gospel, right? Now, what is poverty? Poverty is a lack of access to hope. So all of a sudden, someone is over here, the same type of person, except they're a smurf, right? And the gospel is over here. We wanna build the bridge but there's missing pieces of their ability to understand the gospel, okay? God is a loving father. Let's start here, God is a loving father. I don't even know my dad. I live in a neighborhood where nobody knows their dad. 
When I think of my father, when I think of father, I, think, I don't think of anything positive. My father hurt me, abused me, left me, abandoned me. So you're telling me God's a father? I'm out. Now, what if those of you with wealth could fill in that blank? Well, I'm supposed to buy a dad? No, but you can use your wealth. How? You're so wealthy, I'm so wealthy, that I don't have to work seven days a week. And when I'm done working, I go buy my food at Aldi's, <laughs> right? Or if you're rich, giant eagle, right? <laughs> I go buy my food. I don't go home and grow my food. I don't go home and butcher my food. I go home and I watch football. My wealth provides a lifestyle for me, and I could take the byproduct of that wealth, which you should not feel guilty about, and I could fill in a dad void for somebody. I could give my Saturday morning. I could mentor a kid. I have the time, I have the freedom, and that's because of my wealth. And all of a sudden, this kid can understand a father as well as this one who's got one. See how that works? If you want to find God, you should find him in the Bible. I don't have a Bible, and I don't have a Bible in a language that I can read. What do you mean read the Bible? 120 languages in Chad, Africa. I, I, I don't know English, I don't know French, I've grown up, I only speak a dialect that's true to my tribe. What are you talking about, read about, what do you mean read? Well, I could use my wealth, and we could translate the Bible. By the way, this is happening right now. We could translate the Bible into a language that's, ne this Bible's never gonna make money but we could get the word of God into a language that people could understand on a heart level. I could actually use my wealth to make the Bible as equally accessible as to the other guy. God is a God of love. He wants to meet your needs, really? Because I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm literally dying from a tooth infection. Well, all of a sudden, now I can, I can alter something with my wealth. I could build a blood bank in Chad, Africa. Chad's the size of two Californias. Imagine the southern half. Imagine in all of California, the only place in all of California that you can get a blood transfusion for a surgery that would save your life is in the blood bank that Grace Church built. I can, I can use my wealth to save a life. I can use my wealth to go on a short-term trip. I can use my wealth to, all of a sudden I can bring equality through healthcare. When you think of God, think of Jesus. I grew up in a culture, Jesus is a prophet. I grew up in an Islamic culture. Jesus is a prophet, Allah is my God. I grew up in a Buddhist culture. I don't, we don't even believe in Jesus. I grew up in a tribe. I never even heard the name of Jesus. We worshiped that idol over there. I could use my wealth to send a missionary 
to live in your culture, to help you understand. So that works. This is what Paul is calling for. He's not calling for an equality of lifestyle. Guys, that's impossible. It's impossible. Jesus says that that, that that kind of poverty is always going to be with you. There's never going to be an equality of lifestyle. It's impossible to have, and it's, it's actually unimportant. When he talks about equality, he's saying, listen, this person's path is natural to the gospel. It's easier. If we could take our resources and provide that same type of path, So the great commission delivered on the rails of the great commandment through the principle of equality, if people, if my people called by my name could have that kind of heartbeat, and if they would take their wealth, because that's what the passage is talking about, if they would take their money and all of the benefits of it and use it, then there could be equality and generosity could allow the gospel to be spread. Now, guys, listen, this is not a guilt trip. And if you're newer to grace, you just have to trust me. I, we, we just don't do guilt tripping things around here. It's just not my personality. If you try to guilt trip me, I'll ignore you. You just need to know that, right? It's not a guilt trip. But here's the deal. Heidi and I are wealthy, top 2%. Wealthy, wealthy. And I am, I am not guilty about that wealth. I'm grateful for it because it was given to me by my father. I didn't choose where I was gonna be born. I didn't choose at what time I was gonna be born. I didn't choose my giftedness. God did all that for me. Everything I have, every good thing I have is from God. I don't feel guilty for it. I feel grateful for it. And Heidi and I, we live a North American lifestyle. I live, I live in a beautiful home. I drive a new car, I drive a 2015 Subaru Outback, like everyone else in Northeast Ohio does apparently, right? Right? My kids have health care. My kids eat fine. We're going to go on vacation, right, this summer. We have a car, we have a 1970 Volkswagen convertible. We have a car that is only a toy. We're wealthy. Right? I don't feel guilty for it. I feel aware because I can feed myself and feed my children and put a roof over their head and clothe them and give them an education and give them health care and give them a future and I can drive a reliable car and we can go on vacation and we can have a flat screen and we can watch a movie and we can eat for entertainment. I can prepare for retirement and I still have money left over. And this is where most North Americans, not all, where most North Americans are gonna run into God. I met all your needs, yep. I met all your wants on some degree of your wants. So you have a flat screen, maybe not a brand new one, but yep. I gave you a life of luxury. Yeah. And you didn't even care about equality. It 
it was never even on your radar? You didn't view what you have as mine, let alone my call to generosity, let alone my directive to tithe, and you just hoarded it all? Yeah. And that's the line. This is not guilt. That's the line where conviction should kick in. Because we can live, we don't even really have to curtail our lifestyles. I don't have to sell my flat screens. I don't have to never eat out again. I don't have to never go on vacation. We don't even really have to curtail our lifestyles to take ownership. Some level of ownership of the needs of the world. Some of us are going to have a hard time looking God in the eye and explaining that one. It's just, it's just true. Because I believe God gives us what he gives us because he chooses to give it to us. I believe that one of the reasons he gives it to us is for us to enjoy it. But that's not the only reason. And we... The wealthiest 2% need to uniquely receive this part of the teaching of the scripture. It is unique to us. It's a unique responsibility. And guys, listen, it's an amazing opportunity to be able to propagate the great commission on the rails of the great commandment and all we're doing is investing a little bit of what God has given us. And we can start filling in these blanks for people. This is what we do with the money at the church. This is what all these city ministries, Joe was talking about, this is what we're doing across the world. Right? We're, we're, we're just filling in these blanks. Paul says, that's what I want. I don't want you poor. I want equality. I, I want you to use your wealth to smooth the path, so to say, of the gospel reaching those who are lost. All right, I'm gonna ask the band to come up. And I, I think the big walk away here this weekend is, is this question. It's what I want you to wrestle with. Everybody look at me, ready? This is not a guilt trip. I don't do guilt trips. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, that's all. So the question is not a guilt trip question. The question is this, how am I participating as an agent of equality? What am I doing? A minimum is a tithe, 10%, it's a biblical principle. A mindset is generosity. The maximum is everything. That's kind of the way the Bible lays it out. The non-option is nothing, to do nothing. So I have to wrestle personally. What am I doing? What's my family doing to be an agent of equality? And give God that freedom. Don't, don't be defensive with him. Give him that freedom in your heart here even this weekend.
and talk with him and interact with him as we pray and worship and come to a resolution of that question. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your generosity to us. Let us reflect your heart and your mind to those that you love. Help us in your name, Jesus. Amen.